So let's begin and uh, before we launch into the subject matter, which is Shito, or Seikito Kisen, Japanese. He is the student uh, of this pair that we're studying. Uh, does anybody know how to pronounce his teacher's name? Shin, Shin Wan, something like that? That's a tough one. Q is sometimes spelled C-A, so it's something like Shin, Shin Yuan. Zingxi, or in Japanese, Seigen Gyoshi, <coughs> who we will talk about this afternoon. And there's not much to say about him because there's not much known. But uh, is he not the author of the Sandokai? Shikito? No, Seigen, his teacher. I thought Shikito was. Let's see if we've got it under oh. attribution in here or not. <coughs> It's, it's, uh, right? So, okay, so that's good because that gives us something to talk about. I was just looking on the chart. This is Mandy's uh, book. We're here. This is. Uh, Sagan Gyoshi, this is Sakito Kisen here. Um, thank you. You might notice Matsu Daoyi, or uh, Baso, as we know him in Japanese, Baso, is over here. He was contemporary with them. A very famous teacher, but not in the same lineage. We're basically tracing our lineage ultimately where it will start with the gray here with Dongshan or Tozan and Sozan, his student, <coughs> all the way down to Master Dogen in, in Japan here. So the rest of these will be Renzai and other other, other schools. Hi, Richard. Welcome. Uh, there's a, one of these is framed and posted in the newcomer's room if you want to look into that a little further. So I thought what we would do is to start out, since some of us are here on retreat, is just answer any immediate questions you, comments you might have about uh, sitting or about the retreat, things that have come up for you. And some of you have read some of this material, right? So uh, I wanted to start with the question and answer period and then, and then make some comments, sort of go backwards here. So anybody have any uh, comments about the sitting so far? And if not, uh, questions about Shito or Sekito? Anything you've read? Anything stand out for you? Nobody's read anything. <laughs> <laughs> Can you offer some insight into the um, suppressive rights in the, the province? There was a, I was reading one of the, the markers you put in um, about uh, if somebody said, what is the meaning of Buddhism? Into the suppressive rights. Okay. Problems. Let's take a look at that one. Are there more copies of this? I'm sorry, I just had six, so maybe share. I'm in favor of
Yeah, there's a lot of context. This is uh, the fifth koan in the Book of Serenity. Uh, if you would like to look it up. I guess the difficulty I have with these is the same difficulty most people have, is that in reading the introductions, the commentaries, and so forth, uh, many times references are made to literary type allusions or references to the culture of the time, which I frankly am not a scholar. I don't understand what those references are. But uh, so let me, I'll read the introduction and you'll see what I mean. Siddhartha cut off his flesh to give to his parents, yet is not listed in the legends of filial children. Devadatta pushed over a mountain to crush the Buddha, but he did, but did he fear the, so, the sound of sudden thunder? Having passed through the forest of thorns and cut down the sandalwood tree, just wait till the year ends. As of old, early spring is still cold. Where is the Buddha's body of reality? So does anybody have any connection to any of those pictures that we're painting? Mm -hmm. uh, that's where is the body of the Buddha. And there's actually uh, one section of the Diamond Sutra that I keep going back to. And uh, it's, it's sort of it's in relation to that. And it goes like, uh, since the possession of attributes is an illusion, so to see, uh, mm -hmm. and, and no attributes is no illusion, by means of attributes that are no attributes, the Tathagata's body can be seen, or something like that. And uh, that sort of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, confuses me yeah. at this point. It's talking about the Dharma body. Mm -hmm. If uh, Dharma means uh, being or body, as w it means a reality as well as uh, truth or teaching. It's not just a literary or written teaching. It means that this uh, so-called, uh, we call it podium sometimes. We call it, What else do we call this? We call it a lectern. You know, it is a real thing. Uh, it's a Dharma being. It's a Dharma body. It used to be a tree, which is also a real thing, dhamma, and so forth. And yet, this has attributes that the tree did not have. Right? Attributes are sometimes called marks as well. So there is a dharma being, such as a human being. We're all human beings by our classification. Other people may challenge that. <laughs> but uh, each of us has different marks. Uh, my attributes are not the same as yours. And that's how I'm different from you. You're different from me. The way we are the same is what we call this dharma being of a human being, this dharma body of a human being. So this uh, reference, uh, and I think it's a good response to this, where, where is the uh, Buddha's body of reality? Um, if you take the sum total of all beings in the universe and all of their attributes, all of their marks, all of their differences and all their samenesses, <coughs> all of that would become in a sense a wash. You know, if, if you could comprehend it all at once, then you would be comprehending, in a sense, nothing, because there would be no, you know, you wouldn't be able to distinguish the, the differences from the samenesses and so forth. So every galaxy is unique, and yet every galaxy is a galaxy, and we recognize a galaxy as a galaxy. 
So they have distinguishing marks. One distinguishing characteristic of a galaxy is that it's not a planet, <laughs> you know, or it's not a star. It's a cluster of these things and so forth. So with every everything that we can name in reality, the Buddha's body of reality, everything that we can name is not the Buddha's body of reality because it is extracted from the body of reality and therefore it has distinguishing characteristics and marks that distinguish it from everything else. Okay? Once it's inserted back into the body of reality and we step back and see the total whole as a whole, then those distinguishing marks become, those distinguishing characteristics become in a sense marks on the Buddha's body, you might say. Marks on the real body of Buddha. There are attributes called galaxies, there are attributes called human beings, there are attributes called grass and trees. They're all attributes of the total Buddha body. There isn't anything that is not part of the Buddha's body of reality. And so it's the one, but at the same time it's the many, yeah. uh, simultaneously. Yeah, in the Sandokai, it was talked about the attributes, <coughs> you know, a few, I can't remember, but it's a few grasp the uh, individual, that's not it. If you say it's all the same, that's not it. Yep. So it says, um, Thus, for each and everything, according to the roots, the leaves spread forth. Trunks and branches share the essence. So, um, in the I think Xingxing Ming, this is used to talk about the schools of Zen, that we, we now have all of these various five schools of Zen who, that have sprouted. And there are differences between the schools of Zen, and yet they're all part of, they're like the leaves of a tree. They're all the branches and leaves of the same tree, and the root goes down to into back into Buddha's experience in India. So it's all coming from the same root in that sense. And that's a very limited way to look at it because according to Buddha, Buddha's own teaching is that it goes much further back than that to prehistory. There's no beginning of it. So this uh, teaching of Buddhism is really pointing out the reality of the universe that we live in, that we exist in. And Buddhism does not posit that there are other realities, that this is, that this is the one reality. I don't think we, there's an argument there. I don't think Buddhism tries to make a case and prove that there are no other universes, et cetera. There are no other. Buddhism talks about other worlds, but there can be other worlds within this same universe. So while the Buddhism Bodhisattva is coming and gathering from all the other worlds to listen to Buddha preach, does not mean that there are necessarily another reality that is not this reality. So in that way, Buddhism is very much consonant with physics, you know, or, or science, where it says this is finite reality. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It changes. It's continually changing. But from what we can tell, it's a, one theory is it's a finite system, that it, it is everything that has always been here still is here. <laughs> it's just in a different form, right? Everything that is here now will always be here. There's no other place for it to go. Now, when it comes to us and we think of ourselves as a person or a life, you know, then we'd, we'd like to aspire to that and think that we will live forever. We're immortal and we will never die. We will, we will always be here. But that's conditioned by the way that we perceive ourselves. That wish is that we would always be here in the way that we are now, right? Buddhism says, doesn't contradict the idea that everything that has always been here will always be here. It just means not in the way that it is now. This is the fundamental principle of dukkha or change. 
So when it comes to our perception of ourselves as an entity, as a person, we don't, we don't want to let go of that. We cling to that very tightly, right? But the, the body of Buddha includes that, includes all of that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that when we die, we somehow become a cosmic consciousness that is, a, is aware of everything, like a god, a godlike state. Now, Buddhism doesn't go that far in making those kinds of um, speculations about what, what your existence is after your death. I struggle with that in the sense that you know, we, the, the teaching is that you know, we're not a... I was talking with someone this week about this as it relates to reinc reincarnation. There's something <coughs> that that moves the, what we call time from one body to the other. Now, my, my reading would indicate that it's not necessarily... But it seems to me like there's a contradiction. So there, there should be something. There seems like there ought to be something that's fairly distinct in there. Mm -hmm. Now there's lots and lots of causes and effects that come to bear. I don't <coughs> think it's necessarily linear, but help me with that, Aaron. I think the reincarnation theory is that exactly as you say that somehow there is something, something the essence that moves from uh, life to to the, life to, life. to the next rebirth. Mm -hmm. But in rebirth, uh, it isn't. There isn't any essence or entity. There is, um, as I understand it, uh, it's explained as a, a bundle of uh, ca uh, causes and conditions mm -hmm. that affects the, affect the nec next birth that derive from this life. But that doesn't mean that something actually transmits from moment to moment. Now we have this persistence of, uh, of the person you know, that we have since you were a child. You can remember what you were like as a child. Most people uh, would say they can't remember anything before they were born. Uh, some people claim to remember <coughs> things in the womb. Buddha was said to have said he remembered past lives. So uh, for most of us, I think uh, we'd have to say that uh, wherever we came from uh, before we were born, so to speak, we can't remember. And yet, uh, the fact that we can't remember it doesn't rationalize any fear of where we, quote unquote, are going after we die. It doesn't make any sense. But Mark Twain was asked that at the, toward the end of his life, and he said, why, why should I be afraid of where, returning to where I came from? If you think about it, we're, we've, we fear death, but we, we welcome birth. We celebrate birth. And yet, how can the two be unconnected from each other that way. So uh, I think one of the principles or tenets or theories of Buddhism is that the, the, the death is the rebirth, but it's not the same person. Causes and conditions from the, this life affect the birth, just as causes and conditions, soil, rain, sunlight, affect whether or not a seed grows or not. But we want to hold on to what we perceive as I. Yeah. And thought of that, not, not being able to do that after death. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think most people in most culture think if you, you, you die and you go to heaven or whatever, you, uh, 
you're carrying your you're, you're carrying this self mm -hmm. with you and very closely dearly held belief it's very difficult yeah. to see any alternative and so you tell them that they're going to die and what they perceive as their self right now is not going to carry forward mm -hmm. as a real shock mm -hmm. And moreover, you go to a funeral or something of that sort, and this minister's up there saying, and you're going to, in this town, or you're going to meet all of your mm -hmm. family, your loved ones, and then this and that and the other, as if to say all of these selves are, are, are carried forward like that. Mm -hmm. So which is the more absurd of those theories? Which is the more absurd idea that this is the one and only birth and life? I don't know. Or that this is one of... Well, that's not going to... It's like, I think that the eye is constantly changing. Like, it, you know, once someone says to me, uh, the self will uh, continue to exist after death, and I ask them, show me the eye without pointing to a past or future moon. I think the eye only manifests itself in action in the present moment, but then it's gone. It's impermanent. And it's like... I think Brad Warner talks about that in Hardcore Journey a bit. Mm -hmm. I think you can sort of see that impermanent nature when you do delve in. Sort of, we can accept uh, that moment by moment, thought moment, sometimes said thought moment by thought moment, nothing actually uh, physically as an essence or an entity transmits or carries over from thought moment to thought moment while we're alive. You know, we can we can say that yes, I can sort of remember what it was like when I was five years <coughs> old. But it's really all different. I'm not the same person. You know, biology tells us our cells change every year or something. They're being sloughed off and digested and replaced. And so, we we understand intellectually how complex and how rapid the change is, and how continuous it is, how complete and thorough it is. That in the middle of it, we can't find anything that doesn't change. We can't find anything that is somehow that essence or that person that remembers what I, you, we were like at five years old and can tell that, in a sense, we're the same person we seem to be, and yet we can't, we can't be. So Buddhism, this is Buddhism's premise, is that the true self is, is constantly molting like a snake, molting its skin, but it's a continuous process, moment by moment, so rapidly that we can't even perceive it. Who was the one that wrote the butterfly poem? Uh, I know that was a Taoist, but I think it sort of has relevance to what you're saying. Dreamed I was a butterfly yeah, last night. Who was the one? Am I dreaming that I'm a butterfly, or was the butterfly dreaming that I'm human? Yeah. Am I now a butterfly dreaming that he's a man? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, <coughs> that's the good part. At the very bottom of the pot. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ken, you had some. I've been thinking about this actual line of reasoning a lot lately and doesn't pay to think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> I have no you know, can't can't dispute that it's it's easy to see that the you know your body changes and your mind changes in certain ways, but there's there is continuity and and the fact that I can remember things that happened to me when I was three years old, even though I was a different person. I don't have somebody else's memories, I just have mine. That's right. And that's a very powerful feeling of consistency. And that yeah. feeling of consistency is what people are terrified of when they think about death. I mean, 
anybody could say, well, as long as my, you know, ego process goes on, who cares about this body? But, but I, you know, in the enlightened people are still the same person. They still have their personality. The personality may be changed and transformed, and they may seem different from, you know, ordinary people, but they're still consistent within themselves, pretty much. If you look at the principle of codependent origination, it says that mind arises out of body, body arises out of mind. So all of those things that you can remember uh, are dependent, codependent, for the origination upon the body, your body at that time. Right? So if, when, if and when the body disintegrates, then there is no more codependent relationship out of which that consciousness can arise. What, what the Christians and the other religious systems want to believe is when the material body deteriorates, there's something in there that isn't material, spirit, soul, self, that somehow escapes, escapes the veil and somehow goes on yeah. as a spiritual entity. And this is what Buddhism says. is Buddha claims on his own experience to have gone all the way through this process and died on the cushion and found no evidence of any such <laughs> remainder. <laughs> Once it was over, it was over in that sense. But it's not really over because the, the larger Buddha body, the Buddha body of reality, uh, still uh, encompasses and includes what is me. So they say when Bodhidharma returns, uh, Bodhidharma returns in the fall. He was a red bearded barbarian. So when the leaves turn red, that's Bodhidharma returning. Kind of a poetic statement. So let me go on a little bit. Um, yeah. Like uh, you say, your memory. Um, the, in the case of Alzheimer's, when you can't remember any of your memories, I'm going through that with my father right now, mm -hmm. and uh, comes and goes, good days, bad days, and uh, how then it's all uh, dependent upon cells and. Mm -hmm synapses and all of this, so when that stops. That memory is gone and doesn't mean that those things did not happen. Oh, no, right, right. But then the self is changed. So there is no consistency. It's well, consistently changing, so there is no consistency with your yeah, past. Yeah. But the, the principle running through there consistently is the very fact that the deteriorations of the cells erases the memories. So the, the so-called so mind, uh, that for you? mind, you know, is de is codependent upon the matter. Right. Uh, they don't exist separately from each other. Now, once that happens, if there is rebirth, would would the will come back for the dog first? Uh, you know, <laughs> when. <laughs> When Buddha said he remembered his past lives, <laughs> or maybe, who knows if he used the word remembered, he may have said witnessed or some other word, uh, something, uh, this Akashic record is spoken of in Tibetan Buddhism where everything is actually recorded, but you have to be able to read the recording, you know, by going into a transcendental state or something. That's the, the, the Dalai Lama can tell, recognize his toys and so forth. I think anything is possible in Buddhism. It's possible, but uh, we we look for evidence to 
base our ideas on rather than believe in reincarnation or believe in rebirth. Or, you know. I think so, yeah. So, so if you, you, would you want to, would you personally be interested in reliving your past lives and seeing them? Would that be of interest to you? Uh, I think it would be a horror show. I mean, I, <laughs> I like doing the same. Yeah, the tr birth is traumatic. I was talking with Eric Beck. He's a, one of our disciples in, in uh, Huntsville, and he's a <coughs> medical doctor. And we were talking about this principle that the baby doesn't know anything yet. The baby can't, infant in the crib can't sort anything out, and the trauma of birth and so forth. And he said he thinks that it's not that birth is so traumatic that it's suppressed. We can't remember it because it's so painful. So obviously it is, but the neural networks just are not wired enough at that time for the infant to even register what it is. So an infant being born cannot separate seeing from hearing, from smelling, from tasting. It's just one. Everything is just one sense, you might say, of being. Obviously, an infant is going to have a sense of being and, and, and hearing things and feeling things. But in the womb, the temperature of the body is the same as the mother. So there can be no differentiation in temperature unless something, you know, from the outside creates heat. Probably can hear daddy's voice, you know, speaking through. But uh, so the first uh, sensory impression of other that an infant probably has is to hear a voice or something from outside the womb. It's probably hearing. And ironically, that's Avalokiteshvara said awakening to hearing, through hearing, was the primary way most of Buddha's disciples woke up through the sense of hearing. So, you know, I think, like they say, smell is connected to memory. All of these things are obviously connected. But uh, when you look at the physical evidence, it seems that the theories of Buddhism are far less fantastical you know, than, than theories of religions. They seem to be more rooted in mm -hmm. science, I mean, looking at what it really is. The idea of reincarnation is much older than Buddha, and yeah. it's Hinduistic, and I just don't, if Buddha, Buddha is saying, teaching that there is no permanent self, It was on a What is it that survives? I mean, if your if your body is burned and turns into ashes, it obviously mm -hmm. becomes part of the soil and yeah. starts doing something else. Everything Personally, survives. I'm not too concerned about that. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. I don't see that as my future life. And I just don't see where in Buddha's teaching he said, well, you know, when you die, your karma goes into some other being. And the Tibetans have, you know, this elaborate system of thought whereby that's exactly what happens after 40 days you you know go back 49 to I think. or something uh, but I 40 days was the christian thing right? <laughs> it's very very elaborate yeah. but to me uh -huh. i don't see any reason why that's not probably just something that was in the tibetan religion before Buddhism got there like all their gods and all those demons and stuff the reason we get confused about it i think is that buddha was teaching in that environment he had to teach in the context of those beliefs, just as we we have to teach in the context of Christian beliefs today to try to clarify things. You have to take what people already think they know or believe, you know, and then talk about this in relation to that so they can see the difference. Otherwise, they can't register what you're talking about. So when you go back to Buddha teachings, the recordings of his early teachings, and you see the things he says, he's necessarily framing them in that context, right, of the Hindu 
proto-Hindu or whatever it was at the time, those uh, Atman, the Atman, uh, and he says, Anatta, Anatman. So he's contradicting the conventional wisdom of the time, but in doing so, he has to use that terminology. And so rebirth sounds a lot like reincarnation, and Matsuokuro, she never bothered to differentiate the two in his teaching. He just used the word reincarnation because that's what everybody here knew. Uh, now I think it's important that we differentiate what Buddhism means by rebirth as compared to reincarnation, because people have it all balled up. It's not the same. Rebirth is a very much more fuzzy logic gray area than <coughs> reincarna reincarnation is pretty linear and simple. It, it uh, strikes me that there may be some uh, strong evolutionary value, survival value, to having <coughs> a strong persistence of self, which yeah. is really based on uh, memory. Uh, that we say, well, when I was this age, I behaved this way under this circumstance, and that's the way I still behave. Mm -hmm. That's part of who I am. But, uh, and if we didn't have memory, we'd, we'd have a hard time getting through this life and negotiating yeah. our way through the world. But that in itself doesn't seem to be a, a very compelling argument to say that there, because of that, there is no self. I was reading in uh, of, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's book this week, and he called something to attention that I thought really, you know, we talked about evidence. He called attention to uh, the whole concept of cloning. I take one one of your cells and duplicate <coughs> it now. And he says that includes the karma, the feet of your ancestors, your, 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 your feelings, your memories, it's all, he says, in that cell. Now, I don't know whether scientifically that's been proven or disproven, but I know cloning is an established, accepted fact now. Now, we know it is from the standpoint of physical continuity, but I thought that was fascinating that he yeah. would say, well, your very ancestors yeah. karma is, is, is in that cell. In, in a way, I think it has to be virtue of DNA, but that's almost like the physical analog for for karmic uh, remainder or carryover. You'd, you'd have some scientists argue that. For for instance, they take, uh, is it identical twins that are really, truly identical in their mm -hmm. cells? They're, 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 they're very different people. In their DNA. My parents have but, the, brother. But, but they grow up to be very different, and it's not just the nurturing effects of their daily lives where they might live together and have very similar environment that they live in. Uh, so even in, in that case where you'd think those are going to be identical people, they're not. We also get genetically based diseases that one will get and the other doesn't. My father had a twin brother who mm -hmm. died 20 years ago of a, of a mm -hmm. genetic blood disease, mm -hmm. my father's son, mm -hmm. and they're very different people. But I don't think we closed on what you were bringing up, the very fact it's like, you know, it's difficult to convince somebody of something if their paycheck depends on their not understanding that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> the, uh, the fact that we have this persistence of continuity of, of, of the person, pers persona, doesn't necessarily prove that it doesn't exist. It doesn't prove the negative by any means. Right? But when you have something like Alzheimer's, you have some of these other things that come into play, then you start to say, well, that just vanished like a 
like a fantasy, you know. And so Buddhism has, has pointed at this truth and, and, and has made the point. Zen makes the point primarily as the key part of key sect of Buddhism that not only that, but this is actually accessible to your consciousness. That you can actually experience something which reveals to you this truth. You can your your consciousness can change to the point that Buddha's changed, so you can see a different reality. Now there are many people in Buddhism and many scholars who deny that there is any such transforming experience in Buddhism, and they can't find evidence, you know, that proves it. And this is a very difficult thing to prove because as a scientist, you know, you can you prove things by having somebody mount the same experiment that delivers the same results. And so you have proved, fail to disprove. you fail to disprove, right. And uh, that depends on third party, second third party evidence, right. The difficulty with consciousness is there's no way to get that. I mean, scientists are trying very hard to find ways to wire us up and with machines and map the brain and see, you know, from secondary sources how they can show something. Yeah, some, yeah, something is really going on here. This is not their imagination. But it can only get to the point that it can prove that whatever we experience in our meditation is as real as a dream. Right? So how real is a dream? Some people argue that dreams are real. That, you know, some form of tele, you know, what do you call it? Clairvoyance, you know, or something that is, others say it's just the brain is sorting out random information, making sense of it, which is what our brains are designed to do. So you get into almost an endless regress when you try to argue this down to uh, wrestle it to the ground where you've got the, the proof that you need to give to everybody else. And in, in our practice, the only proof that is important is that that we experience ourselves on the cushion, first person proof, first person evidence. Uh, Secondary levels of evidence, apparently, uh, <coughs> something was clearly different about Buddha and something was clearly different about Hui Nang and all the, any of the ancestors you want to name. And they attributed to this experience that they had, right? Hui Nang wasn't sitting on the cushion. He was unique in that way. But the impact and the effect that they then had on the people around them is considered sort of sociological secondary proof that there had to be something real happen here or else they wouldn't have had that kind of power over other people, right? They would just be another, uh, you know, teacher, another uh, mystic, which India is rotten with them, right, uh, on the street. So why did people come from miles around to, to go see Buddha? Why did he, you know, why did people flock to him everywhere he went? So he had this mystical power that we can attribute to charisma or, you know, whatever you want to attribute it to. But when we look at the history of, of Zen, we begin to see that kind of evidence. And records were kept about these people. They wrote down the things they said. I mean, you either have to attribute that to a, a mass hysteria, mass hypnosis, right? Or that there wasn't much else to do. There's no TV. And so these really interesting persons are around. <laughs> or you have to begin to believe, you know, that there was something genuine and real there. You know, and if you if you didn't have that sort of gut feel for this, you wouldn't be here, Pract trying to practice and find out. Um, so, so I mean, I guess the the idea of awakening is, is referring to a sort of a, a discrete event that happens in, in, in 
the mind or, or the you know the brain of an individual person. Oh, caution against that. All teachers caution against that idea. They, they speak of it as more of a process, not a, not a discrete event. <coughs> not, okay. not, not a discrete event, but it's a, it has uh, it's incremental. That's why it's sometimes called gradual, but it can also be sudden in the sense that it can hit you like a ton of bricks sometimes, huh. depending. You know. Huh. I mean, because I mean, there was a point in you know, right? So assuming that Buddha was a real person, like there was a point in his life, maybe when he was eight years old, when when he was not awake, and then there was a point later in his life when he was awake, <laughs> and so at some point, you know, there was some trajectory towards being awake. Maybe it was abrupt, and maybe it was gradual. The, th the way I've heard it expressed, the Renzai's thing of <coughs> above this mass of reddish flesh resides a true person with no title, no status, <coughs> constantly coming and going through the six portals, through the senses and the mind. So there are stories of Buddha when he was in the crib, and he was out in the field, and they were plowing the field, and he saw the worms in agony wiggling around after the plow passed by. And so they recount these stories where, you know, these were cues, these were hints and signals coming to him that there is another side of the story here. There's the rest of the story that we're not, my parents aren't telling me, you know, there's the rest of the story that nobody seems to be paying attention to. And all kids grow up this way. You know, kids grow up and they have dreams and they try to talk to their parents about their dreams. The parents don't want to talk about your dreams, right? That's not important. We don't talk about dreams, right? And, and the Aborigines in Australia do, but we don't. And so all these things that are cues or clues to you as a child that give you the sense that there's something a little out of sync here, you know. Nobody seems to be paying attention to these things that seem to be very important. And so you learn to sort of forget about that and just go to school and get the grades and so forth. So you're distracted into, right, the channels and the areas of and the ways of thinking, the thing, things to be concerned about that are important <coughs> to the culture, to the parents, to your peer group, and so forth. So it took Buddha 30 years to have this process finally reach a kind of culmination. Okay, so there was some kind of culmination for this individual, um, and, and that's documented. Uh, are there similar culminations for his students? As far as we can tell, that's what the transmission of that that's what the transmission of the light is all about. It, it documents and records probably <coughs> what would you call them apocryphal or I don't know what the right word is, you know, legendary stories as well. But we get the sense that there's some historical truth to these exchanges that something like this happened, where sometimes the teacher was able to help trigger this kind of process in the student. The process of uh, maturation or crystallization in Buddhism uh, is this is this uh, process of uh, one teacher described as self-renunciation. Um, you have to see through your own life. Nobody can do that for you, but you, you get to this point maybe coming from, I suspect that I'm not getting the whole story here and that nobody seems to be paying attention to the fact that everything around me is getting killed and dying, and you know, uh, a child probably feels immortal, right? They say that your brain isn't even wired until your late 20s to where you have this sense of mortality. This is which is why they, all the 20-year-old kids go to war and play football, and you know, they don't understand yet, in some deep way, 
you know, that. Oh, 20. Right, yeah. right. So there, there are special cases <laughs> where people, you know, Dogen was in his 20s when he went to China. So there are special cases, people who pay more attention. But in general, you have to agree that uh, we're conditioned away from this. You know, society conditions us away from all this. As long as you bring around on a rock and avoid, so right, right. Or as long as you bring Jesus into your life and so forth, you won't go to hell. You go to heaven. They keep the social structure so that you know you do work and you're all contributors. Otherwise, who would? Who cares? Yeah. Can I ask you one more question about sure. this? Of course. What this gentleman was saying before about Alzheimer's made me realize that Alzheimer's has not run in my family, but I guess I'm old enough lately so that. There are times when I will completely lose my train of thought, and it, I mean it happens all the time. I guess when I was younger, you can like work your way back and find it. It's like you start back again, but now I get to the point where I can't, and mm -hmm. I've just accepted. I just give up and start over again, mm -hmm. and it's like this. Come in. So my question, I guess, is. Hello. Yes. Is it is it implausible to think that that sort of you know desperate attempt to grab hold of the train of thought is some kind of I mean it is your ego. It's like your e it's like the fear of death. Your ego is afraid that if it shuts up for five minutes. You're, it's going to be dead. It's like it, really if it if it can't resume mm -hmm. and keep in control, you don't want to lose the thread, do we? It's going to die. Yeah, or go insane or lose its underpinnings. Really, it could have been a gift. It's a threat. Yeah. But it always comes back. I mean, that's what's astonishing. It's like you lose your identity, but then a couple of seconds later, it just pops right yeah. back in. It's ready to go. What your in Alzheimer's patients. Very often, I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with what happens if somebody really, their body begins to be affected by it. But mentally, people don't seem to be too disturbed about the, I mean, they just, they, they just, they, they, are, they don't know they forgot. Yeah, they don't, they're not aware of the fact that they don't remember. Yeah. So it doesn't disturb them too much, at, at least in the beginning. So until you remind them, you, you, you know who I am, you know, don't, they, yeah. they might stay obsessed with when they, oh, I should remember that. Yeah. It creates a little conflict because everybody's there's more stress when you're dealing with strangers than dealing with people you know and they don't know anybody. So I guess my question is: Is meditation somehow what you're describing is sometimes referred to as cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. and it's technically said to be holding two opposite um, views or perspectives in your mind at the same time. They cancel each other out, so it's kind of frizz out and fritz out, you know. Uh, uh, con <coughs> contradictory things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, one of the guys who founded the internet. They had interviews in the New York Times Magazine several years ago. The four or five foundational people who got all that going before the government could get hold of it. And he said in his presentations and lectures to people, he's a guy who wears a cowboy hat and he's a consultant of some sort. 
he said he intentionally tries to bring about cognitive dissonance in the audience, where he gets them to the point that, you know, stop, you know, <laughs> because then there's the possibility of something fresh happening for the first time, a fresh perception, a fresh thought, a fresh uh, apprehension of reality. So you could say, you know, that one of the goals, you might say, or objectives of meditation is to arrive at that <coughs> state of cognitive dissonance where nothing makes any sense. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, it's like, no, it's not a very useful state of mind. I mean, you can't get people to pay you to be that way. <laughs> you can't contribute to a board meeting. But enough on that. So, you know, enjoy. Uh, Dick Robinson, who some of you know, he's a sort of diminutive guy, he's a violinist. He was for the, the uh, Atlanta Symphony for many years. Now he does electronic music. He 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 doesn't. He wasn't coming during the winter because it was too cold for him here, which I never occurred to me that. Anyway, he started coming back recently, and he told me one time. He said, "I was so glad to hear you say that that the mind and the environment are are one." because every time I walk into another room, I can never remember what I'm doing there. You know, I walk into this room and suddenly it's kind of cognitive. Just, I can't remember what, why I came in here. And so he said that when, I, when you said that that's because that room is a different mind, <laughs> he said, that, that made it fine for me. I'm just moving. <laughs> I'm in here and there's a different mind. You know? <laughs> so anyway. Okay, so... Roots, thus for each and everything, according to the roots and leaves, the leaves spread forth, trunks and branches share the essence. So this is also saying something a little bit differently, that uh, the, the, all of these branching forms of uh, Buddhism uh, that is spoken of in Xing Xing Ming a little more literally than this, uh, share the roots, share the um, origin from the roots. You won't have uh, oak leaves and branches grow out of birch tree roots, right? So Buddhism is this special tree, you know, that we might say has been planted. You you won't see things that are not Buddhism growing out of it. So this this becomes a kind of a conscious matter and a, and a principle of protecting the Dharma for those who are, when you go through the transmission ceremony, the, the word is entrusted. You are entrusted with the Buddha Dharma. So this means that things can grow that aren't really the Buddha Dharma, but everybody thinks they are. You know, people think that they are coming from the root of Buddhism when they're not. And so those of us who are entrusted have to go around pruning the tree from time to time to help people understand that that's not really Buddhism. Revered and common, each has its speech. In the light there is darkness, but do not take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but do not see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another, like the front and back foot in walking. So here we can see, uh, if you think of the front and back foot in walking, we think of them as separate and different from each other, right? And yet it's constantly shifting from the one that was the back foot is now the front foot and vice versa. So there really is no separation. There's, there's separation, but there's not difference. I don't know how to say that. It's like Sensei's explanation of the bow. These look like two different hands when they come together. 
this symbolizes the self we don't like and try to improve, and this is the Buddha nature, the self we aspire to. This says that those two are really only one from the beginning, even though they seem to be separate. Same with the front and back foot and walking. But here I think he's getting very close to, um, he's using light and dark, like Mokurai, silence and thunder. Remember the expression here, did, did, did uh, Devadatta tried to push a mountain over. He was supposed to push boulders out and tried to kill his cousin because he was jealous. But <coughs> did he jump at the sound of thunder? In other words, was he uh, already dead like Buddha? Was he secure? You know, it wouldn't matter to Buddha if the rock squashed him. Buddha was already dead. Buddha was fine. So he's he's asking the question about Devadatta, who's in jealousy, is trying to kill Buddha so he can be recognized as the Buddha, right, the spiritual leader of of the Shakya clan. Uh, but is he jumping every time he hears the sound of thunder? In other words, is he really grounded? Is he really where Buddha is, or is he, you know? reacting in fear like most animals, most prey animals, or most, uh, yeah, prey animals. So here, the light and, light and dark, uh, silence and thunder, all of these things conjoined in Mokarai as op apparent opposites, apparent opposites, but they're really attributes that we identify as being opposite. In, in physical reality, they have no opposite character to each other. You can't say that light knows that there is darkness, and darkness knows that there is light, right? Uh, inside a tree, it's dark. This is the Taoist principle that from the other side, everything is dark. And yet, it's, it's alive, right? Uh, but it's not like our consciousness. From this side, everything is light, like a, a reflection in a mirror. But the part of you I don't see inside of you that is seeing me is dark. The part of me that you cannot see that is inside of me is dark. So light and dark he's setting up as this, these two so-called opposites that represent all opposites. And he's saying that uh, in the light there is darkness and in the darkness there is light. But we do not take it as darkness and so forth and we do not see it as light. So it's not... It's not uh, the same light that we are setting in opposition to dark. The light that we see in the dark is not the same light as, say, sunlight or light that we might set in opposition to dark, and vice versa. So somehow these two, yin-yang, complement each other. They define each other, actually. And they make each other real, like, like uh, warm and cold, heat, heat, and, and cold. Uh, whatever feels cold has to be warm. Whatever feels warm has to be cold, cooler, by at least by some degrees, right? It has to be.